Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Um, I'm really excited for what I am about to share. I love um, our worship team, but the three minutes that we just spent right there could be the most significant thing we do um, this morning. And so we want to be a church that really believes and leans into prayer. And uh, if you ever feel like I'm not leading us in that direction, permission to call me out because um, that's, that's where the power comes from. And uh, we want to be a church that really leans into that. And so uh, with that said, we're starting a new series today. It's going to be so fun. Um, And here's where we're going to start. We're going to start, I want to start specifically by talking about where the Bible has gotten it wrong. Pause for dramatic effect. (laughs) Or um, maybe said another way, uh, I want to talk about where the Bible has said something and maybe we have misinterpreted it. And this could be a 52-week series. I'm going to make it very narrow for the next three weeks. I want to talk about how we have potentially, at times, misinterpreted some of what God has said through his word around the idea of promises. So uh, my friends know this. Now you will, too. This is extra safety for me. If I ever post Jeremiah 29.11 on my Facebook or Instagram, I have been taken captive. Uh, and, and if you have this hanging in your home, I'm so sorry. Uh, it is a great verse. It says, uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And, uh, and this is a promise for captive Israel many, many years ago. It's a specific promise for them. That doesn't mean it's not true like for us in certain circumstances, or it doesn't have a principle that we can draw from it, but it's not a promise for us. Uh, New Testament, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great promise, specifically is around the idea of living a content life, whether you have a lot or a little, which seems pretty far from some of the ways we at times claim this, like in the middle of doing an Iron Man or trying to lift something heavy, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, uh, and Jen Wilkin, she's a great Bible teacher. She has this awesome article talking about the difference between uh, what she calls general and specific promises of God. And so specific promises are for certain people at certain times, but there's principles we can draw from them. And there are general promises that are for all people or for everyone that's in Christ. And those are the ones that we want to say, oh man, I want to take that to the bank. And so one of, uh, and we shared this last week, uh, one of the hard things about, I mean, many hard things about walking through infertility for five years is at times, and people meant well, but they would come up and say like, hey, you're going to have kids. Remember the promises of God. And the problem is that God doesn't promise us kids. And Catherine and I really had to wrestle with that. Like, actually, that's, you know, we didn't correct them, but that's not true. We had to wrestle with what if God actually doesn't have that for us. Uh, similar but different, God doesn't promise marriage. He doesn't promise that uh, all physical healing is going to happen in this life. He doesn't promise an easy life. He doesn't promise lack of struggles. He doesn't promise good grades. Sorry. He doesn't promise behaved kids. He doesn't promise the absence of mental illness. 
Some things God um, doesn't promise, and we can get really disappointed if we assume he did and then he doesn't come through, when in reality, there's just different promises that God makes. And so we are super passionate here, so passionate about the Bible, but we're not passionate about just what's the Bible say. We're passionate about what's the Bible say in context as the author intended for it to be understood. And so there are promises in Scripture, general promises, and when we come across one of those, we want to get, it, get excited about it. We want to take it to the bank. Here's one, and this is uh, what the next three weeks is going to be about. This is one promise said a few different ways in Scripture. Um, Matthew 28, 20, this is Jesus teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is to current and future disciples. Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God. This is not just for the Romans. This is a statement that's more true broadly. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then the one we're really going to land on, same promise said a different way. Uh, it's in Matthew 1, 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there are many promises in this book um, that were for certain people, and they're not specifically for us. They're principles we can draw. But there are a lot of promises in here that are for us. One of them is that it's Emmanuel. God is with us. His promise to us in this season, but really his promise to us more broadly, is his nearness. He promises us nearness. That's why we're calling this series Near, because he draws near. And it's a year-round promise, but we're often reminded of it at this season when we start talking about Emmanuel, that God has drawn near. And we want to talk for the next three weeks uh, about how God draws near in sorrow, God draws near in waiting, and God draws near in joy. And uh, next week, I'm actually going to, I'll be preaching all three of them, but next week I'm going to get to co-preach with one of my good friends. Her name's Catherine. You've maybe heard of her. <laughs> it's my wife. And, uh, and we're going to talk about how God draws near in waiting. But today, God draws near in sorrow. So, that was quite the intro. Uh, if you've been around for a while, it's going to be one of those days. It's going to be one of those days where I absolutely overwhelm you with Old Testament scripture. And then just when you're ready for me to get to the New Testament, read Luke 2, make a point, I got two more passages in Micah that I'm still going to. So we're, if you're newer here, uh, we say this every now and then just so you can all hold on. Relevance, relevance is coming. That was so weak. Relevance is coming. And just so you know, give me like 12 minutes. It's going to be, maybe it's going to be painful. Maybe it's going to be exciting. 12 minutes, relevance is coming. We will end up in Luke 2, but not before we start in the so famous Christmas passage of Genesis 35, 19 through 21. So Rachel died. Merry Christmas, by the way. So Rachel died and was buried in Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel, another name for Jacob, Jacob moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. Uh, now, the word Migdal means a watchtower. And so catch this, watchtower of Eder. I can tell you're impressed. Eder means flock, and so uh, this literally just translates watchtower to the flock. And we have a picture of potentially what it looked like. So it would have been basically, um, because what you did back then, what you did is you named things 
after their, or places after their functionality or what they looked like. Now, we don't do this anymore. I moved here from a city called Las Vegas. Um, maybe you've heard of it. And what that translates to is the meadows for all of the grass that's there. But, so we've lost it. Back then, you would name something after its function or what was happening there. So in this area of Migdal Eder, there was likely some kind of larger hill to look out over the flock, or actually more likely, probably some kind of tower that you could do some shepherding. Now, in places of shepherding, they often built these small structures called mangers. And what you do in a manger is if you were raising specifically lambs for uh, some kind of sacrifice, you would uh, take the lamb, especially if it was for sacrifice, needed to be without blemish, uh, you would take it and you'd wrap it in swaddling cloths and you would lie it in that structure called a manger. Tell your neighbor, I think I see where he's going. You gotta do it. Tell your other neighbor, I hate when he makes us talk. (laughs) I know, I know you do. Christmas is, here's my main point this morning, Christmas is not just a season, but it's an unlikely story of how our God drew near. Genesis 35, now we go to Numbers 28, we're not even going to read it, I'm just going to explain it to you, I'm going to talk so fast, because we must get to relevance before I lose some of you. Numbers 28 lays out this thing called the Old Testament, like, or called the sacrificial system that is in the Old Testament, and here's why it was important, because God and man had this fracture that happened long, long ago right? And there was no reconciliation between God and between man. And so what God did is he said, look, you can come back to me, but there must be death. Actually, there is no forgiveness. There's no reconciliation without blood. And in his unbelievable, infinite, incredible mercy, God said, but I'm going to let it be the blood of something else. It doesn't have to be the blood of you, man. And so he says, I'm going to let the blood of a lamb, a perfect lamb, be a sacrifice that bridges the gap temporarily, and that specifically is laid out in Numbers 28, but the big one comes from Exodus 12, and it's called uh, Passover. And so what would happen in this sacrificial system? Twice a day uh, at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., you would make this a daily sacrifice, but then there was the big one. There was Passover once a year that you would sacrifice a perfect lamb, and it was, uh, it was a holdover. It was a, a temporary payment for one year to absolve, to reconcile the, the fracture that was between God and between man. Passover was a big deal because it helped, or it, it, uh, it satisfied the payment of our rebellion. That's in Numbers 28 and Exodus 12. Now we're going to actually take a break from the Old Testament, and we're going to go, not to the New Testament, but to something called the Mishnah, okay? And the Mishnah is like the OG commentary. This is a, a bunch of Jewish rabbis got together, and uh, I read commentaries to like get ready. This is like Christian commentaries that interpret the Bible. Jews had that too. It's called the Mishnah. And so what they would do is a bunch of rabbis got together uh, around 200 AD, and they started to make commentary on their scripture, which was the Old Testament. And so here's what the Mishnah says. Cattle, which actually is like any form of like animal that's bigger than like a rodent. So this could be sheep, this could be uh, lambs, this could be cows. Cattle found all the way from Jerusalem, so we've heard of that, to Migdal Eder, and in the same vicinity in all directions are considered if male as whole offerings and if female peace offerings. Rabbi Jehuda, we all love him, says that if they are fit for Passover offerings, they may be used for such purposes provided Passover is not more than 30 days away What on earth does that mean? (laughs) Here's what the Mishnah is saying. 
there is this area that we're going to raise the Passover lambs, or lambs for sacrifice, including Passover lambs. And it's going to go from this city, Jerusalem, all the way over to this area called Migdal Eder. And this area, that place that Jacob once buried his wife, this area is going to be where the Passover lambs, where the sacrificial lambs come out of. I know what you're thinking. I really hope he has more Old Testament facts before he gets to his point. I do. And also, thank you. Your encouragement does mean so much to me. It does help so much. Thank you. Micah 4. Sorry, Micah 5. Famous Christmas passage. You've probably heard this. This is Micah prophesying where the Messiah would one day be born. So Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And this would be impressive. I mean, this is crazy, guys. Micah foretells where the Messiah would be born. This would be really impressive if Micah did this nine months before Jesus was born. But he didn't. He did it 500 years before Jesus is born. And he says, this, through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is where the Messiah is going to be born. And we read that before. That then at the very end, it says, um, whose origins are going to be from old, from ancient times. That big word there, uh, at the very, very end of that, is olam. In Hebrew, it is olam. Not a frozen character, something completely different. Olam. And how olam is translated, usually, is eternity. So it says, there's coming a Messiah. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. We know that. And his lineage, his, his, um, he's going to come from eternity whose origins are going to be from eternity. Now, this is rhetorical. You don't have to say this out loud. But what king has such a long lineage that actually there is no starting point? What other king has no beginning point? What other lineage is there that actually goes all the way back to eternity? There is no other king. See, every other king has some kind of a start. And what Micah says is not only where he's going to be born, but this king's going to have Olam ancestry. This king's going to have a a lineage that goes all the way back before there was time. John 1, we heard this last week. John 1 seems to agree. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Micah 5 and John 1 are saying kingship This king is going to be different. This king is going to be uh, eternal. This king isn't going to have a starting point, which must mean that this king is going to be divine. Christmas is not just a season, but it's an unlikely story of how our God has drawn near. Before Micah 5 was Micah 4. We're going to go to Micah 4, 8. Not a Christmas passage here, but it says, As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, The former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. Now, at the time Micah's writing this, there is no king in Jerusalem. There's been kingdoms that have taken over Israel. And Micah says, but a king is coming back. There will be a king in Jerusalem again. But dominion is actually going to be restored at the watchtower of the flock. There's a king coming back to Jerusalem, but dominion is coming back to the watchtower of the flock. Not rhetorical. How do you think watchtower of the flock is translated? Migdal Eder. Literally, Migdal Eder was a place named 
that meant watchtower of the flock. Dominion is coming back to that place, and a king is coming back to Jerusalem. I got one more. Not Old Testament, not the Mishnah, something even different. It's called the Targum. And for simplicity, it's, it's also kind of an OG commentary that, um, that priests made as they were trying to keep the culture and keep the language during the exile. They started to make commentary on Old Testament passages. And so uh, the good news is we're going to go to your favorite Targum. It's the Targum of Jonathan. And, uh, and here's what Jonathan's doing here. Jonathan, and uh, this is probably in between the two testaments, so like around zero to maybe 200 AD that he's writing this, they think, they think. Um, Jonathan is looking back and he's reading now Genesis 35, okay? And so we're going to read most of Genesis 35 and then he adds his comments on top of it. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to let you know where scripture stops and Jonathan's comments begin. Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath that is Bethlehem, over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. I'll put up, just go and put up the original. Everybody read this out loud. Go ahead. No? All right, next one. Jacob moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. That's where scripture stops. So, Jacob moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder, the place that King Messiah would reveal himself at the end of days. Come on! This is awesome, guys. The Bible is so exciting. Jonathan is looking back, and he's saying, man, I'm reading Genesis 35, and this is a Jewish man. And he's saying, man, but in light of, like, Numbers 28, Exodus 12, and even some stuff that Micah wrote, I think this. I think this is going to be the place. He's reading Genesis 35, and it's like, that's not just where Rachel was buried. That's also, I believe, if I'm reading this correctly, he says, that's where the Messiah is going to be revealed in Migdal Eder. Luke 2. You've made it. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And uh, we know from verse 4, this is outside of Bethlehem. And so the shepherds are shepherding in an area nearby right outside of Bethlehem. So this is like Bethlehem Metroplex. This is the Covington to Cincinnati. This is like basically the same place, but it is a little bit outside of Bethlehem. Most likely in a place, I mean, if we're looking at this, a place just outside of Bethlehem, we've heard of that place that would be good for shepherding, and these are shepherds, so it would reason to believe that they would have found the best place to do their shepherding. And so these shepherds are likely in a place called Migdal Eder. And they're watching over these lambs, these lambs that would one day be used for sacrifice. And it's potentially not even just any lamb. They're likely among that lamb was the one that was going to be used for Passover sacrifice. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on peace, on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. 
And for us, um, this passage potentially evokes like emotion or pictures. For me, we read this uh, every year at, in my parents' basement. And so I, I read this and I see that picture. Uh, maybe you see something else. Maybe you haven't really heard of this passage before. Um, but here's what I want us to do. I want me to forget about my parents' basement, you to forget about whatever this evokes. And I want you to imagine, not being a 21st century American, but being a first century shepherd. I want you to imagine what this announcement would have been like to them. Where the angels come, and they say, hey, hey, you know how, um, you, know how you guys like take care of these lambs, these Passover lambs, uh, or this lamb for sacrifice? And you know how, like, when they're born, like, if they're supposed to be a sacrificial lamb, you, you wrap them in cloth to keep them from blemish. And then after you wrap them in cloth, you, you put them in a manger. You know how you do that? Here's what the angels are saying. There is a baby king who has come in the exact same way. And for us, it's like, oh, man, bummer that there wasn't any room in the city. But for the shepherd, I mean, imagine what the shepherd could have thought. I mean, apparently this baby is a king because the angels have shown up for him. But angels, do you know what happens? Do you know what happens to, 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 to babies that are born and, and wrapped like that and laid there? I mean, do you know every 100% of the time that happens, they die. I want you to imagine the confusion the shepherds would have had as they see the apparent kingship of this baby and they're starting to process through why would he come like that because every other thing that has come like that hasn't ended well and the angels come and they say no 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 this is actually great news for of great joy and here's what I believe that that they're saying this is not going to make a ton of sense to us or not going to have a ton of uh, semblance to us but it would for them the greater Passover lamb has come there has now come one in the same way, in the same place that we knew it was going to happen. There has now come one that is going to get rid of that old thing. The thing that we've had to do every year or even twice a day, that's going to go away because the greater Passover lamb has come. And so Jesus, born in a place near Migdal Eder, the place that dominion would one day be restored, the place that often was used for raising the lambs for sacrifice, the Passover lamb that was used to reconcile God to man. Jesus is born in that place inside of a city that Micah had told about 500 years before. Christmas is such a season of the supernatural, but it's a supernatural story telling about how God has drawn near to his people, about how God has come near to his people. And here's the relevance. Here's the crazy thing. The angels come, and they say, this is good news for who? They say, for all people. And they said it to the shepherds. Now, the shepherds were like, they were equal to prostitutes and tax collectors. If you were low class at this time, you were still above the shepherds. There was actually a law or a, an ordinance at this time that said, you know, because there were certain laws around food, and, and some people were asking, well, I have dogs too. How do I know which food is my food and dog food? And the way that the, the scholars of this time came up with that is, well, if a shepherd would eat it, we'll consider it food. Because there's humans, there's dogs, and then there's something in between. And the very lowest rung of human is shepherd. And the angels don't just come to kings. 
They come to the shepherds. And they say something in, incredibly profound. That this is good news for all people. The shepherds were low. They were hurting. Rejected. The, believe the shepherds were in sorrow. The shepherds were unlikely. And the angel shows up to them. I, I believe this morning... Uh, it's actually the sorrowful among us that are primed for an encounter with God. And I can think, and maybe you've thought this too, we can think at times that God has come. He has drawn near for them or for that group. And we often miss the idea that it could be for you. No, God's, God's drawn near, but it seems like he's drawing near to the, the successful. Or maybe it's the other end of it. He's drawn near, but he's drawing near to like those that really, really are hurting, and I'm just kind of mildly hurting. But the promise that we see from the angels, straight from the mouth of God, is that this is good news for all people. We often think that God draws near to them, but I actually believe that God draws near, according to this, to all people. We are all people. I am all people. You are all people. And Jesus comes and he's the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah they expected. And if we're honest at times, he's not the Messiah we expected. The Messiah was supposed to come for the who's who, and Jesus came for the whoever. The Messiah was supposed to come for the powerful, and Jesus came for the poor. The Messiah was supposed to come for the wealthy, and Jesus came for the worthless. The Messiah was supposed to bring peace through a sword, and Jesus brought peace through sacrifice. The Messiah was supposed to be one that helped his nation, and Jesus came for all nations. The Messiah was supposed to be good news for slave owners, and Jesus set the captives free. The Messiah was supposed to come, and he was supposed to, to build himself up. And Jesus came and he poured himself out. The message this morning, all of this Old Testament stuff, all of the looking into the context is supposed to bring us to one point. The promise of this season is that God draws near. And specifically today that God draws near in sorrow. He draws near to the brokenhearted. And if it's a hard season, I get it. I really do. But it seems like his promise is that he still draws near. And so this morning, if uh, you are heartbroken, if you're in the midst of sorrow, if you're hurting, if you're betrayed, if you're sick, if you feel tired or sad or overwhelmed, this morning if you feel stressed, I have good news. You are an excellent candidate for God's nearness. And for those of us this morning that feel like modern-day shepherds, unwanted, rejected, forced out, not in, I have good news. You're an excellent candidate for God's nearness. These three weeks, um, we're doing a few things that are different. Uh, we want to really acknowledge 
um, through spoken word and through music that God has drawn near. Uh, we also want to give imagery to that through painting. And the other thing that we're doing is we want to hear how God has drawn near to people in our community. And so uh, every week we're going to have a testimony from someone here uh, telling a story of how God has drawn near in that specific circumstance. And so I'm going to invite up my friend Stephanie, and she's going to share this morning how God has drawn near to her in sorrow.